0: Hi, my name is Emily White Rubin, and I am an emotional health specialist. For many years now, I've watched our world label people's depth of feeling as a problem, as something to fix or mask, as anxiety, depression, as something is wrong with you. Our suicide rates continue to grow higher, and our addiction to drugs and numbing continues to increase. Many of us are hiding how much we feel because our culture can be so quick to shame or judge us for being too emotional. I witness someone apologizing for crying almost every single day. I believe that we need more emotional education, more tools, more support in being with how deeply we feel. I don't have all the answers, but I want to be in the big messy questions. How do we cause less harm in our big waves of feeling, like rage, grief, anxiety, or fear? I'm here to help people learn how to be there more for themselves and for others emotionally. Welcome to Feeling Deeply. Welcome to Episode 5. We'll take a simple pause now to check in with how we're feeling if you like, try placing a hand somewhere on your body. It could be your chest, your throat, your belly, anywhere that feels intuitive to you. Is it supportive to have a hand on your body as you're checking in with how you're feeling? My guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Rubin, who grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and received his PhD from the University of Minnesota. In his early years, he worked in clinical settings, schools, and a juvenile correction facility. He's published research based articles in Professional Psychology, Research and Practice, The American Psychologist, Counseling and Values, and the Journal of Humanistic Psychology. In our conversation today, we question using labels like major depressive disorder, anxiety disorder, etc., instead of focusing on people as individuals and their individual experience. We unpack the science of pathology as well as some alternative approaches Dr. Rubin has been creating and researching. He believes that some of the most creative and wonderful things we treasure in our world have come out of feeling more deeply our sadness, our anxiety, or even our anger. We talk about what it's like to become buddies more with all of our feelings and some tools for how to deal with criticism and the potent feelings that can surround that experience. Currently, Dr. Rubin writes a blog that features suggestions for working through conflict, dealing with anger, and supporting respectful relationships. You can find his blog at frominsultstorespect.com. And I'm particularly grateful to have Dr. Jeffrey Rubin as my guest today, because he is not only my friend and colleague, but also my father-in-law. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Delighted to be here. To be fine.
0: Really appreciate your time, Uh, and I thought we'd start with what led you to your philosophy around mental and emotional health.
1: Well, first of all, I was trained in a variety of uh, wisdom traditions. My last uh, training program was at the University of Minnesota where I got my PhD, and I did sort of run into a problem shortly after. My first job was in a psychological clinic. And in order to uh, access services, part of my job at the first visit, we called the people coming to visit us uh, patients. They all had health insurance that included mental health services. And at the end of each uh, session, I had to come up with what was called a diagnosis and label somebody as having a mental disorder. And so. If uh, Mary Smith came by and she told me that, that she found out that her uh, husband was cheating on her and she was having trouble sleeping, she was very upset about it. At the end of uh, my session, I had to say, Well, I do need to put on your insurance form on your health record that you have a, a, a... I guess I'll diagnose you as a major depressive disorder, because you're sort of depressed about what you're going through. And some people seemed fine with it. At least they didn't tell me how they felt about it. But there was a subgroup of people who said, "What do you mean you're going to say you're going to put in my record that I have a mental disorder?" I says that's, that's that's a stigmatizing label. And uh, sometimes they ask on uh, job applications, "Did you ever have a mental disorder?" Or "Am I supposed to lie about that?" I would tell them, "Well, it's supposed to be confidential. You know, we, we keep this confidential, date had anxiety. A lot of times things were said to be confidential and it came out, so they had anxiety. Here I'm trying to uh, deal with one issue and to throw in this other issue that was upsetting people made me think more deeply about that part of the process. And as I did research, I found other people were concerned about it, not only because it seemed to upset some of the people we saw, but it was not based on science, Uh, It really violated a number of science principles and instead was a, uh, a business model that was being funded by the pharmaceutical industry to legitimize the prescribing of pills for any emotional or behavioral problem that they could market. So it didn't seem ethically right to be doing this. So I did begin to explore some directions with other people as well. That sort of separated me a little bit from the standard medical model and um, thinking about how we could get people to be able to access mental health services, psychological services, without this diagnosis kind of process. And I know you have this feeling deeply approach. That's one nice way to be able to uh, avoid that kind of, uh, I think, stigmatizing and really inconsistent with what's truly happening with each person. Individuality outruns any classification system, and we should be thinking of people as individuals, not labels. So that's part of what led me to move a little bit away from the medical model. There's still some wisdom at times that I still tap into that came out of that model. So I haven't completely abandoned every idea that ever came out of that, but I have sought out other approaches.
0: And so was it from there that you became passionate about creating this alternative to the DSM which maybe just because some listeners may not know what the DSM is would you share what that is and then
1: no. There is a book put out by the American Psychiatric Association in terms of that's what who is said to be the publisher and indeed they are, but it's actually funded by the pharmaceutical industry, the development of that program, that's where the money comes from, if you follow the money. And um, in that book, it's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. There's over 300 different stigmatizing labels that professionals use to label people. The most popular ones that people have already heard of is major depressive disorder, anxiety disorder, Bipolar disorder or manic depressive disorder depends on which addition came out. They changed the labels sometimes. Attention deficit disorder is a huge one. These are oftentimes just kids who are just being kids that are getting labeled so that they could put kids on uh, different kinds of drugs. So that's what the DSM is all about to some degree. But there was an international committee that was so unhappy with this pathologizing of human experience that they formed and uh, they knew that I had written some articles about this issue in the past, asked me to be involved. And we've been working on coming up with an alternative. And I've written an article for the Journal of Humanistic Psychology. And it's an alternative is that instead of labeling people we label their expressed concern so that we can talk about the person in a shorthand terms. so somebody comes in and says that they're feeling depressed they you might say that she's concerned about how depressed she's feeling not labeling her as being mentally disordered or having a mental illness but we just define in our discussions with other professionals this person came to me and they're concerned about their failing grades would be something um, whatever the concern is our job is to address that concern and it would be a way to allow people to access their mental health services without having to be pathologized in any way there's more to it than that but briefly that's what that's labeling alternative to the DSM is all about mm.
0: I really appreciate you sharing about that I think I didn't know until maybe in the last 10 years even what the Mm. DSM was Mm -hmm. I knew that there was this labeling and I knew that it was very common Mm -hmm. and that some people liked it and some people didn't like it and some people even were judged unfairly and and not even hired in particular circumstances because of those labels Mm -hmm. and so I think it's really interesting that your process led you from the beginning to question Mm. that model Mm -hmm. and then as you went along to actually look to create something different to create a different possibility
1: yeah within the profession there was a lot of criticism of it but not a lot of people saying well what what would be the alternative to it and it seems to me that criticism without coming up with an alternative is just blowing in the wind kind of thing Mm. So I think we've made some progress in that. But the wheels of the psychology profession, uh, they grind very slowly. And though they allow you to publish in APA journals. There's lively discussions of it to actually get the leadership to say, you know, it's really unethical for us to continue to use this unvalid, unreliable DSM approach. We really have an ethical obligation to come up with an alternative. There, there's so much money flowing from the pharmaceutical industry into psychology and psychiatry. It's because it's an unusual profession. They're selling a product that costs them each pill less than a penny a pill, a fraction of a penny to manufacture, but they could sell it a hundred or even 2,000 times more than what it costs to manufacture. Usually if you Manufacture something and you get 2% or 6% or even 8%. That would be an enormous profit for most items that are manufactured to have something by hundreds and 200 and even a thousand times more. And the pharmaceutical industry says, well, they have to charge that much because of their research. The actual studies show that when research is carried out it's done by people at universities or just university professors in the pharmaceutical industry will then buy the patents from them and that the vast majority of money that the pharmaceutical industry uses in terms of their profits is number one to the people who are invested in their companies but also in promoting their drugs so uh, it's a very unusual kind of uh, profession they had the most money spent on lobbyists in Washington than any other lobbyist group. So it's very hard to change when there's that much money flowing into a profession. It's very hard. So it been somewhat discouraging, but I'm not giving up.
0: <laughs> I really appreciate you sharing that knowledge because I think For me, every time that I've had conversation with you about this, Mm -hmm. I learn a little bit more Mm -hmm. around all the years of research that you actually have been doing on this topic. Mm -hmm. How long would you say you have been researching these connections with the pharmaceutical industry and the psychological, mental, emotional health realm?
1: Well, I actually, my first article that was somewhat related to this had to do with the way in schools Uh, because I at one point worked in a school district and in order to access special ed services, kids who were just teachers had concerns about the kids not paying attention or they weren't doing. uh, It's certainly natural for some kids to move along at different rates and in order to get them extra help we had to label them and right away they were parents that would begin to what do you mean you're going to label my child emotionally disturbed you're going to put that in my kid's record he's six years old he's going to be emotionally disturbed sure i don't want that in his record they were satisfied that what we oftentimes what what we wanted to do to address the problem get some counseling services or give the kid some extra tutoring or something of that sort they were pleased to get that but they were very unhappy with the labeling. So the whole labeling process began to affect me over 30 years ago within the school situation. And then when I graduated the University of Minnesota in the early 1980s and the first job I got I saw within the, the use of the DSM that we discussed about a few seconds ago, it was equally as disturbing to some people. Some people find and see, gee, the doctor now knows what's wrong with me, and they seem to like So for those who find that they're having their concerns pathologized, I don't want to interfere with them. But for those who want to avoid and access mental health services without being pathologized, I felt as if it's right to offer an alternative. They were paying the same premiums, and it just seemed the right thing to do. Mm-hmm.
0: And the fair thing that they would have an option to either diagnose through a concern uh through what they were going through Mm -hmm. or through a label.
1: Right. And there's even research that shows when people do have a choice that they feel more empowered. And part of the process, one of the major wisdom traditions... Most of the wisdom traditions say, you know, it's important for people to feel like they have some control, some influence on the process. Here, they're not given that. Uh, It's either you could spend years and years paying for your premiums, and then you're told it's either this way or the highway. And there are people who feel really uncomfortable, and it just doesn't seem fair. And it's not helpful, in my opinion, to set up a model of that sort.
0: I really love your perspective on working from the individual. I find for myself in my own work and in 10 years of private practice, working with individuals and groups, that the complexity of what each human being is going through when they come to process a challenge Mm -hmm. or a concern or what might be labeled as depression or anxiety or Overwhelm or even bipolar anything along Mm -hmm. those lines. I continue to be amazed that the complexity of the uniqueness to each person is So important in helping them find the help they really need
1: Yes, and it's not only helpful to them It's crucially important to them, but if you get into as a professional see people as labels because there is a tendency to you say channelize your thinking Oh, this guy's a depressive this guy has major depressive disorder this is the way to go with that I think it narrows your uh, ability to be more open to the individual person and it's much better to think of each person as an individual so I'm glad you and I, I know you well enough to know how you do Uh, Respect the person's individuality. That's important Yeah,
0: Yeah. I I deeply agree that that power of choice and the individual that is coming for help getting a chance to empower themselves Mm -hmm. and decide for themselves how they want to seek help Mm -hmm. and What they want to call what they're experiencing or what they're what they're going through that Mm -hmm. they get the opportunity to really find that truth or that answer for themselves. Well, that's,
1: that's true too. A lot of times the, the pathologizing approach presents the idea that the doctor has the real knowledge of what needs to be done. It's, that's the legitimate approach. I think that there's much more give and take. I learn as much from the people that I work with uh, as they learn from me. And one of the biggest problems with the labeling thing is it's, there is this notion that it's a pathology. And actually I've come to find through biography and my own personal experience that a lot of the things that are pathologized are actually tools. I recently wrote an article about Abraham Lincoln and he experienced a lot of melancholy depression but it seemed to fuel his what made him great and um, people if if he wrote the Gettysburg Address and he was just happy-go-lucky and satisfied his first draft would be oh yeah, this is kind of a, a sad occasion, and uh, yeah, we really owe it to people to dedicate this property, this little piece of land. And he would have been sort of satisfied with that. But what he read it, and he wasn't happy, and he was saying, that's what I wrote for this occasion. And he would be kind of struggling and feel melancholy and say, boy, i, I got to write something better than this. That lack of satisfaction and and his grieving over the first draft, and this is what I came up with, led him to a deeper and deeper sense of seeking something better, something uh, that led to something very creative and something that's treasured for now 170 years hence. So uh, I think it's more useful to think of these tools and whether we have the wisdom to use the tool wisely or foolishly or for good or for evil, you know, I think there is some wisdom traditions to help people to move towards the more wisdom end of the spectrum, but a hammer is a tool and it could be used to bludgeon somebody to death or it could be used to build a a house that a family is going to move into and raise a beautiful family. Uh, A car could be used to end a prom night in a drastic, deadly manner or it could be used to rush somebody to a hospital to get uh, needed services in the nick of time. the same thing when we experience the sadness, this anxiety at times, things that we're struggling with. Uh, We're often often dealing with something that we're not happy with, we're not satisfied with. If we're just happy all the time, maybe we'll just say, well, hey, we're happy, and they'll just get on. But uh, the people who experience these things more deeply, they oftentimes find a more wiser, they they could use that discomfort or struggle to find something that's creative, that people treasured for for many, many years afterwards, not only for your own life, but uh, it might help some other people too. If you stay with it and experience it, and it's also much more hopeful to uh, say, you know, do I have a mental illness? kind of thing, that's because I have bad genes versus, gee, I have something that if I learn to use it wisely, this could could be a very valuable, wonderful thing. And there's numerous biographies that show that there are people who uh, have managed to do this and have been wonderfully uh, respected for what they've contributed to all of us.
0: Yes. And I appreciate so much how in your blog Mm -hmm. you are bringing those voices to light like Joni Mitchell and different Mm. artists and people that we really have respected, people that have done great things for humanity Mm -hmm. and normalizing the holistic experience that they aren't just happy all the time. They aren't just positive Mm -hmm. and able to stay in that space constantly, but that in fact, by riding these waves Mm -hmm. and Embracing and and actually looking at Mm -hmm. these more difficult Mm -hmm. Emotions and experiences like depression like anxiety uh, frustration melancholy Mm -hmm. Whatever you want to label those feelings and experiences as how they have actually utilized them to Be of service to Mm -hmm. humanity and our world
1: I think most of the most creative Wonderful things that we treasure have come out of these very kinds of experiences that psychologists and psychiatrists have been pathologizing, mostly to sell pharmaceutical drugs because there's really not much uh, need for uh, framing it this way. I, I mean, the other reason might be you know, within the medical profession, there are some uh, by using the medical model, if I have a broken leg and I don't know I just actually I was in a football game I got smashed I can't stand on it I go to a doctor he takes an x-ray and he sees that there's a fracture and they have an approach and I did have this happen to me I had a broken leg from a football game two months later I was walking around and I was out of any pain and so you get so thankful for the doctor for having saved my leg to in that way that you think well I guess if You know they know what they're doing, but it's a different. The true medical model. There is a real pathological condition like a broken fibula. What the psychiatrists and psychologists are doing is, if I came into the doctor and I said uh, I can't stand on my my foot, it's uh, I was in a football game. He said, Oh, I know what's wrong with you. You have major non-standing disorder. Just turning what my concern is into some jogging. That that's not truly the medical model, but what the psychiatrists and psychiatrists are doing is that they're converting uh, the expressed concern into something that sounds like what uh, doctors do when they're doing a particular pathological evaluation. And the pathologies in in, in medicine really are either a a bone fracture, a microbe infection, a a, a tumor, um, a blockage to an organ, Uh, somebody's taking some poison uh, or they have an allergic reaction those are the pathological conditions that the science of pathology actually looks for and so the doctors will hear the concerns what are called um, the medical complaint in the medical terminology and then they look to see if there's some pathology that could be identified by a pathologist by sending blood to the uh, the doctor taking an x-ray here there's none of that in psychology and psychiatry. They're simply imitating what doctors are doing by using the word diagnosis when there's no real diagnosis going on. All they're doing is converting the, uh, the expressed concern. And I think it would be more honest to say that we're what we do know here is that you have this concern, and I'm willing to sit down and work with you to address your concern. That's honest. It's also consistent with science because you're not taking going above what's, what we don't know. You can theorize about what the cause is, but the proper terminology there is to say to the person, here's my theory, and what's your thoughts about it? Because you probably you know more about what's going on in your life than I do. But here's my theory about what's going on. You found out that your husband is cheating on you, and it's certainly understandable that you you, know, you got two young children and how are they going to deal with this? So you're struggling with that. So my theory is that that's what has led to uh, your concern. So it certainly makes sense, but the basis of science requires me to express it as a theory. When I say I, I diagnosed you, you know, that you got this thing, as if I know what's wrong with you and make that implication, It's so inconsistent with science, it's not fair to you as the person who I'm seeking to address your concern with. Um, So I just think it's a model that I respect more, it's more honest, and I I think it's more helpful.
0: I agree. And in my 10 years of experience, and I know you've had Mm. over 30, I see the same thing time and again, that uh, it is more effective to actually work from what's happening in the present Mm. moment uh, than just slapping a label on something or pathologizing and making a quick assessment mm-hmm. of what I see and what I think is occurring. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and I will say from experience that part of what took me on the journey that I'm on now is that when I was in high school, I'm 40 now and I was 16 years old, I went in and saw a Occupational therapist and they spent two hours in testing with me and diagnosed me with an anxiety disorder Gave my parents a medication and sent me home and that was two hours with me and I wasn't fully conscious of it at the time I was very resistant and struggled with what had happened, but I was young and I didn't fully understand why I was so angry and why I felt so not understood and Mm. not seen and heard Mm. but of course as the years have gone by i've come to recognize that that was an example of that that was an example for me where that did not feel fair or appropriate to the two hours that we had spent together to mm. just be labeled mm-hmm. that quickly.
1: Mm-hmm. Now what's interesting is that two hours is the exception to the rule. The vast majority of people who get mental illness diagnoses are done usually by the general practitioner or even a psychiatrist who spends 15 minutes with the patient, 15 minutes.
0: That's the average? Fifteen,
1: 15 minutes? minutes. It's a fifteen Now the, the visit might look like an hour and that you wait fifteen minutes in the uh, the first room or the waiting room, then they put you in another room and the nurse will have you fill out some forms. But by actually face-to-face contact with the person who's going to do the diagnosis, fifteen minutes is the average. So you, uh, even two hours, you perceive that as ridiculous. This person knows what's wrong with me. Um, and giving me a pill that's going to solve my problems. It's sad, it's sad to me to, uh, to know that that's what's going on. People are so different, there's uh, this uh, incredible sweep of humanity that we have to respect and these uh, different approaches. For example, some people they'll have a, a depression for uh, one period of time other people, it stays with them a lifetime and it takes a different approach. If you somebody's depressed because of some specific issue, how do you get through that particular issue in, in a, a way that makes sense? And if somebody's going to live for their whole life dealing with life in this particular way, how do they handle that in a wise, productive manner? It's just, that's just two extreme differences. And even within each one of those two issues, there's probably several different, I know that there's several different ways that would work for each one of those two yes. general types.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I appreciate you making that point that there are all those different sides mm-hmm. of the spectrum, mm-hmm. the extremes and everything in between of mm-hmm. when waves of depression will come and go, perhaps through mm-hmm. your whole life. Or mm-hmm. maybe you'll really just have one really rough patch and then you won't mm-hmm. have as much of it for for yeah. your life. And that there's no right or wrong with that either. I think for mm-hmm. a long time I thought, okay, I'll work on this enough and I'll I'll use all these different tools and methods and then I won't feel <laughs> this melancholy ever uh, again. Right, yeah. Right,
1: yeah. And
0: I've definitely come to realize for me that I still have waves of melancholy. Mm-hmm. I relate to them differently now. I... I'm much more accepting of them. Mm. I have a different relationship to them Mm -hmm. uh, that is working much better for me. Mm. And yet, they still come. They come and they go.
1: Yeah. Well, I have a similar experience. I too, uh, they come and they go. There's moments of joy, of course. But uh, when I'm sad, I, I allow myself to experience what I'm feeling physically, whereas I used to rage against these feelings and become angry and uh, what's wrong with me and I learned to listen to uh, observe the experience, observe what comes from it and uh, to make friends with it. We become buddies. (laughs) <laughs> a, a mysterious friendship yes, yes, yes.
0: I find that as well uh,
1: Abraham Lincoln used to need humor to uh, get through some of his experiences uh, I guess that's uh, a little of uh, my attempt at humor for what I go through
0: mm, and you really led into my next question uh-huh. which is for you would you share a little bit around what is supportive in your uniqueness to processing harder waves of emotion like anger or fear or grief melancholy
1: well what came out of it initially was i wondered while i was i do meditate as well during a meditation i i found myself wondering what what is some things that really get me going and sometimes it seems out of the blue. I can't really put my finger at it. I'm just going through a melancholy period. But the most frequent thing is I wanted to be respected and there were times people said some things to me that uh, I felt were insulting. They criticized me. They might have even been done in a a good-natured way. Just getting around might get defensive. Or sometimes it was actually they thought they were trying to be helpful and it was really if i thought about it, it could have been viewed as uh, constructive criticism but just being criticized i would get defensive so i began to think about that and uh, i did learn that there are ways to deal with criticism that was Kind of charming. I would observe, I started to observe people who actually handle criticism. But from that meditation, I said, gee, I wonder, you know, maybe I'm not handling this very well. And it's funny, now that I've really given it some thought, actually, when somebody criticizes me, it's like I welcome it. And I feel as if people respect me more. The fact that they're criticizing me and I handle it in a particular way, I show an interest in what they have to say. I could take a joke, even if they you know, say something uh, that may come across with around my buddies as insulting, if I could take a joke and you know, laugh along a little bit with it, that now I welcome the criticism and what a difference it could make depending on how you uh, do that. And then I meditated a little bit more and I found you know, not only would I get upset when somebody else criticized me, but I was often criticizing myself in the same negative ways that... I didn't like when people criticized me. So I began to think about, gee, what would be a way to deal with my own criticism? And it was a profound thing for me because you think, gee, the way you handle something, and so if you change, can you really change something and, and really have an effect? You are what you are, people say, and there's no changing it. I saw a dramatic difference in my own living circumstances. When I learned to handle criticism, not only when people were criticizing me but when i criticized myself what an enormous difference it went from being angry and eating myself up would might be an expression that i might use to now it's i'll still feel at times a a little punch in the gut when somebody says something but i i could be with that for a few seconds and i'm out of it within whereas it could room days of my time as I would ruminate over, that guy said that to me, I, I next time I see him, I'm going to, and I just would eat myself up about it. Now, within a few seconds of observing what I'm feeling physically, remembering some ideas about how to handle these criticisms in a charming, friendly way, I get over it and I respond to somebody else in a pleasant way so that they then respond pleasantly to me you know it's one thing if you respond negatively and then they're more negative to you and then you feel like doubly insulted and then you insult then you're triply insulted here they appreciate that you listened to them that you took an interest in what they had to say and they are now responding to you in a way that makes you feel good and supportive so i do believe that people by using some of these wisdom traditions can dramatically change. Uh, you, you can change. You can learn these skills, and you can benefit enormously if, if a person's willing to work on some of these skills. And they're not hard to learn, though it does take a little time.
0: Thank you for sharing that process with us. I'm going to recap it. Tell me if I'm getting it right in in a broader sense, because Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned several tools Mm -hmm. that could be interesting to note for people to try Mm -hmm. uh, and see what works for them or what doesn't work for them. Mm -hmm. But I heard first you meditated. You noticed, ah, criticism really gets me, Mm -hmm. and I don't like it, and it causes me a lot of suffering and angst. So you meditated on it a bit and you got some insight, hmm. and then you meditated some more, hmm. and you got some more insight, first and foremost that you really would like to respond to the criticism differently in the other person, hmm. but also that the criticizing of yourself hmm. is a big component of the struggle.
1: Hmm. Am yes. I getting that uh, right? Yes, yes, that was enormous... Uh new step that I took to deal with these issues. This was the the most frequent way that I would be upset, and extensively upset. How I was criticizing myself came out of first thinking about how uh, I was dealing with criticism of other people. So these are things that it took time for me to learn, but I found you can learn it, and I could dramatically change how I was dealing with people. So the idea that people can change, they are what they are, I think there's a lot that you could do if uh, things are not going your way.
0: I agree. I agree. And the neuroplasticity research, Mm. there's so much research that's backing Mm. this now in our Mm. world that we can change our habit patterns, our reactive patterns, our brain patterns can change mm-hmm. and change in dramatic ways that we never thought maybe oh, even 40 years, 30 years ago.
1: Yeah, this nonsense that genes are the complete determinant of your behavior. Genes are interacting with your environment and your own levels of functioning that you've learned over the years and genes are very, very uh, able to uh, readjust. It's much more hopeful if you feel like there are things that you could do than to think i just have to i I got this i got this mental illness it's in my genes and there's uh, yeah i got to take a pill the rest of my life there's nothing else i could do about it what a dramatic different philosophy and some people think that it frees a person out of blame would you just call it an illness i don't i'm not looking to blame anybody for what they're going through i'm just saying that if you feel stuck we could work together and with your own creative abilities, something big might come out of that.
0: And I love that you use the word creative because it is creative because you're Mm -hmm. finding your own unique way Mm -hmm. in this philosophy, Mm -hmm. your own unique way, what Mm -hmm. works for you, Mm -hmm. and really creating that every step of the way because I know for me it keeps evolving and Mm -hmm. changing.
1: Yeah, learning something every day.
0: Yeah, and I want to also note that because I think for a lot of us, We, at least myself, I can speak for, when I'm criticized and I'm triggered, I feel Mm -hmm. that punch in the gut, Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. you mentioned, which you said you still feel, right? So we're just reminding uh, ourselves it still happens. It's not like you've transcended feeling uncomfortable or feeling that punch in the gut. Mm -hmm. But I think it's so interesting to note that what helps you then respond in a kinder way, respond in a gentler way, Respond in maybe a humorous way or a more lighthearted way, I'm even hearing, mm-hmm. which I think is something I would love to continue to foster mm-hmm. more of. When mm-hmm. I'm criticized, what I'm hearing you say is the tool that helps you is you actually pause and be with the sensation. You notice if I'm getting this right, tell yeah. me if I'm getting it right. You notice, oh, there's, oh, I felt that in my body. Mm -hmm. And then you make the choice, actually, not to respond from that perhaps triggered or uncomfortable or uh, from that sensation, if you will, Mm -hmm. that sometimes it moves pretty quickly now because you've been practicing this, but Mm -hmm. tell me if I'm I'm pulling it apart, but it's just because I'm curious to understand more also what happens in myself when I am able to respond with more of that gentleness and not from that, oh, Mm -hmm. uh, now I'm going to protect myself and Uh, come back uh, at uh, you, you know, place.
1: Well, first of all, I want to make it clear, since I've practiced this alternative ways that I feel like I've gotten down, when I get criticism now, for the most part, I actually w- welcome it and don't feel that, that punch in the stomach. There's a certain tone of voice when it's given to me. And sometimes it's not only vocal, there's a certain tone that comes even when somebody's writing. I might hear something in Facebook and they might be really nasty about it. So that's where I get the punch in the stomach. And I learn two things. Just sometimes I, I will just wait as they're talking, but experiencing when I'm physically. But I also have the skill that is enormously helpful to me is if it's still there after a few seconds I have with because I've practiced this I simply summarize in a nice way I can do that muster a very nice summarize and I said let me have some time to think about this and I'll get back to you that has been enormously helpful sometimes you feel like I gotta confront this guy right now and tell him something nasty in in my mind to even the score or something like that this simple skill, and it, within an ongoing relationship, it's it's, it's useful. It's called uh, the signaling to back off. It's some kind of signal between my wife and I. When she uh, feels as if I said something that upset her, she gives me uh, some signal, and uh, I know she needs some time to process this, and I back off, even though I might have a million other things to add to it. Sure. I have to respect that. And she, at the same time, knows uh, that I... Uh, uh, need some time to think about it, and she'll back off and respect that. We, that time to set that up is not when the two of you are upset, but when you're both driving in the car and you're having a pleasant conversation, say, oh, by the way, there is this, and that's the time to really set this up, and most people will respect that. But for some people that I don't have an ongoing relationship much, that simple skill of just summarizing in a pleasant way, this is your point that I, I hear you making, let me think about that. That saves me from an enormous amount of upsetness and uh, really ruining the relationships that actually later... The same person who I might want to become an enemy with sometimes have become allies and good friends and uh, supportive person in my life. So uh, if you could turn an enemy into a friend, that's, that's not a subtle thing in your life. It could be a, a major contribution to uh, the things that you value. Mm. It, it's sort of like what fire and police people do, they have to overlearn particular skills because they got to deal with things in a crisis challenging situation. It is possible to learn it, it doesn't take long, but it does take some practice uh, because of the emotionality that it is involved in these kinds of situations.
0: Yes. So if you're open, would you share with us one of the most meaningful experiences you've had emotionally?
1: Oh. When my first son, Lennon, was born, I have to admit, and, and people know, it's not a bit because people knew this, before um, I had a kid, I was kind of iffy about it, whether I really, it's such a big project to take on, you know. I thought, you know, it'd be nice to have a kid, maybe when he's about 10, 12, <laughs> baby stuff, I said, oh my God. But wow, as soon as I saw my, my son, did I... It's something that I just can't put into words, but it was just such a beautiful, beautiful experience. And the love that comes out of you and the love they share, those, those kids, they, they dig you. at least until they get 13 or 14 and then things start to change a bit. But um, <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> uh, that, was, that was probably the most profound emotion because I didn't expect it. I didn't, I, I said, all right. I sort of knew, you know, it's something that's probably, it's it's a worthwhile thing, Uh, you know, to have a family, okay, but it was a totally different thing when I began to have that experience.
0: And it surprised you?
1: I was amazed. It's something that just came out of me that I just never had any expectation of what it would be like.
0: Well, thank you so much for offering your time and your wisdom and your years of research and experience, lived experience personally and professionally. I appreciate it so much.
1: Enjoy, you.
0: Me too. <laughs> okay. We did it. If you're interested in being notified about further podcasts, you can click subscribe wherever you like to listen. And if you'd like more information about Dr. Jeffrey Rubin, you can find that at feelingdeeply.com podcast, or you can check out his blog at respect.com, where you can also find three novels that he's written about respect and conflict resolution. thank you for being here. Thank you for listening with me.